You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So I was thinking about my guest today as I was out on the town last night. I I went to a, a wonderful fundraiser for an organization called Circle of Generosity. And this particular fundraiser, like so many do, had an amazing silent auction going on throughout the festivities. And I was bidding because, you know, I like to support charity, but also because I like to buy handbags, and they had a lot of great handbags for sale. I was bidding on a couple of different items, and I was talking to the other people who were scribbling their names on the silent auction sheets. And as we got closer and closer and closer to the final countdown, one of the women who I'd been hanging out with remarked to me, you know, I want this handbag so much more than I wanted it when I first got here, but I'm not sure if I actually want it or if I just want to win. And I thought, yep, that is it exactly in a nutshell. Here's one of the principles that I have lived by for years, and it's that money is relatively simple, but people, because of our emotions and our psychological makeups, have this ability to just make it complicated. I've come to that determination in no small part based on the work of our guest, Dan Ariely. Dan is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He's written four New York Times bestselling books, done a wonderful TED Talk, published a lot of groundbreaking research. I love his column every weekend in the Wall Street Journal, and he's got a new book out called Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Dan, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Lovely to be back. I think I've known you now for almost 10 years, which is amazing. 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 So what do you make of my auction experience? Yes, so you're absolutely right, and uh, it's not just your intuition that is telling you that, but we have evidence for that. So there's this effect called the endowment effect. Mm-hmm. The endowment effect, as you know, is when we own something, we start overvaluing it. So when you look at your own house and you put it on the market, you say to yourself, oh, this is just such an amazing house, and you don't see the downside of it, you see the upside. And therefore, you overvalue, we overvalue what we have, and it's true for almost everything the moment we have something. What is interesting about auctions is that you have virtual ownership. If you put a bid on something, you're not the owner of it yet, but you start thinking of yourself as the owner of it. Ah. You basically say, how would I look like with this uh, handbag or whatever it is? And you start imagining it that that's the case. And the moment that starts happening, you start valuing it even more. So we have these traps where the moment we start thinking of ourselves as being the owners of something, it's harder for us to give it up. 
This is why we shouldn't try things on in the store, right? Well, you know, if you buy something that doesn't fit you, it's not a good idea. So there's pros and cons. And also, you know, auctions are interesting. I would never tell anybody to just avoid all auctions. But we have to worry about this. So if you're in the store and, and you're measuring something, right, mm-hmm. uh, if you start imagining yourself going to a nightclub with that particular dress or going to this particular party, that's the step in which you start getting emotionally involved in that particular aspect. If you're looking at it in a cold way and just say, does it fit or not, that's a good thing. So, you know, money is kind of tricky, decisions about money. We don't want to think about money all the time and be miserable. Right. Absolutely not. I mean, we were looking through the new book, and one of the most interesting things that jumped out at at me and, and at Kelly, who's on my team, is this idea that the more we think about money, the worse off we can be. Can you explain that a little bit? And, you know, I mean, you're in the business about talking about money and writing about money. So am I. I kind of hope that this is not true. Yes. So first of all, it's not all thinking about money is 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 worse. But, you know, both both you and I think that life is about, you know, having fun. And saving is all about delayed spending. It's between now and later. And the thing about money is that thinking about money all the time makes it harder to enjoy life. And I don't want people to overspend necessarily, but I also don't want people to be miserable. And here is one way to think about it. There there is something called the pain of paying, right? Yes. The pain of paying is this idea that how much agony we get from consumption depends on whether we think about payment at the same time or not. So for example, if you go to dinner and you pay with cash versus credit card, People enjoy the meal less if they pay with cash. Uh, now, you can make it even worse. Sometimes I, when I teach my class on the psychology of money, I bring pizza and I charge the students 25 cents per bite. <laughs> it's a little cruel, but what do you think happens? They don't eat very much. Well, actually, what they do is they eat huge bites. <laughs> and... And they eat such huge bites that they suffer from the whole thing, right? So they get this amazing deal, like, you know, 75 cents per pizza, but it's a really unenjoyable process. So when we think about money all the time, you know, we don't enjoy things. Now, it's a mix. It's a mixed bag. So, for example, when people move their electricity bill from sending a check in to automatic deduction, energy consumption goes up by about 4%. Why? Because when we pay by check, we think about the bill. We think a little bit about it. We talk to family members. We turn a few lights off. We, you know, uh, make some, some changes. And therefore, we spend less energy, which is good. So how do we square those two things? I mean, if paying with credit is more pleasurable than paying with cash, and yet it causes us to spend more than we should, considering the fact that humans or Americans at least don't have enough in savings, how do we square those two things? Yeah. So we need to understand that paying attention to money is the pain of paying. And when we have more pain of paying, we spend less, right? So that's one good thing. And you could say, let's increase the pain of paying, right? This is what cash does compared to credit cards or what debit cards. And if you want to have a high pain of paying, don't get Android Pay and don't get Apple Pay because those things make it even worse. 
Now, the thing about life, the thing that I, we were saying, like how much pain of pain you should have, I don't think that we should go through life thinking about every cup of coffee. You know, there's, um, when you look at calorie counting, it's really good to count calories for everything. But if you ask people to count calories for everything, most people just give up completely because the exercise is too daunting. In the same way, thinking very carefully about opportunity cost and the pain of paying every time you buy a cup of coffee is probably too much. It's probably too much and, and it will just make life not pleasant enough and people will drop it completely. So if you think about categories of spending, I think we should kind of you know, pick our battles, right? We should certainly save. We should certainly get people to save more. But we shouldn't make it so annoying that every time uh, you go out or you do something, you're very miserable. This is what, why I think budgets are so good, right? Where you basically say, I'm taking $300 a month. I'm putting it in discretionary spending, maybe on the prepaid debit card. And that's my money for, for splurging. And, and I'm fine with that, right? So, so pick a strategy, say what you want to do. And then on that money, don't obsess too much. I got it. So we're right in the thick of the holiday season now. And Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Small Business Saturday. I mean, we're just surrounded by sale after sale after sale and lots of different offers like free shipping. How do we think about all of these things to our benefit? Okay. So so first of all, a a good word about Black Friday. I know you're not expecting this, but but here's so imagine, imagine that uh, you go with your significant other to moderately priced restaurant every week. Let's say every Tuesday you go to a restaurant and you pay $80 for the two of you. And then one Tuesday you go to a really expensive restaurant and it's $220. What happens the following Tuesday? If you got used to $80 and you move to $220, the following Tuesday, you will want to continue with the 220, right? You basically got a taste for a much better restaurant and you want to, to increase it. And there's a, a chance you'll, you'll just increase your spending. But if it's on Valentine's Day and you spend 220, you don't say, oh, the next Tuesday, let's go up. It's kind of a special day. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the same thing works for Black Friday, which is if we just started you know, buying a new TV and whatever it is that people buy on a regular Tuesday, there's a chance people would continue with that as a habit. But if it's about once a year and it's a special day, then it's kind of bracketed. You say, this is a day I, I, I buy all kinds of crazy things I probably shouldn't, but it only happens once a year. So, so that, you know, it, the fact that it happens only once a year is a good thing. Now, if you have a million days like this, it's not as good. So that's on the good side. On the bad side, we have to understand that um, one of the principles of behavioral economics is that we make decisions as the function of the environment that we're in. And we, when we go into a store, the store wants us to spend more money. Mm-hmm. And if we go in without a plan, we're going to go into their plan, right? Uh, we're going to see sales. We're going to see exciting things. We're going to lose uh, our, our ability. So we need to be in control. And there are basically two mechanisms for that. Uh, the first one is a budget. Pick yourself a budget. Take it in cash. I mean, if you want to be strict about it, take it out in cash and make it clear that that's your limit. And, and now if you have a budget in cash, you see the opportunity cost. Every time you spend on something more, you see that something else is going down. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't want to walk around with cash for all kinds of reasons, at least make yourself a list. 
how much money you plan to spend, every item you put, you put in, write it down, subtract the two numbers, and make sure that you understand uh, what, what you're getting. And the second thing is create a list of the things you want to buy. We are kind of cognitively lazy. So you say, oh, let me go to the store and then I'll decide. But when you go to the store and you say, then you'll decide, uh, you're going to be on somebody else's playground, somebody that has a different intention for your money than you do. Does it shape our behavior in that it does seem like we're living in this world where Black Friday is every day? I mean, I get email messages all the time from different merchants about 25% off and 30% off and 40% off. You know, it's, it's not a special thing anymore. Yeah, so I agree with you. It's not as special, and, but I think as consumers, we need to make it special, right? So, so if we basically say it's just every sale is a sale, that's not a good idea. If you say once a year, I'm willing to buy a few items that I really didn't need or didn't intend to for, you know, for the fun of trying new things. I'll give you a confession. I love gadgets. I love gadgets. What can I say? It's okay. I love handbags, so we're even. I think your taste might be more expensive. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out uh, one day. But, but, you know, I love gadgets, and I buy gadgets, and I get some joy out of trying a new technology and seeing what it is. And then, you know, I have to admit, most of them are not as exciting after a while, and then I find somebody else that I can give it to, so, so they get the joy from this. Um, but it's okay. It's okay to buy, to buy gadgets from time to time, even though it's, it's probably not a, a good economic activity. What you don't want to do is you don't want to get it out of hand. So as a consumer, I would say, you know what? Pick a one day a year that you want to make some mistakes, right? You're willing to make some mistakes. You want to limit the amount of mistakes you make, but you pick one day a year. If you start doing it all the time, then it would certainly get out of hand. So pick one day. And then there's another trick. Um, so the word sale is really interesting. So when you look at something, let's say it's a shirt for $75. Mm-hmm. You should say, is the shirt worth $75 or not? The fact that it used to cost $125 is irrelevant, right? It's, it's history. Why, why do we care? So, so whenever you see sale, the, the trick is to try to ignore what the number used to cost because it's an irrelevant thing. You basically need to say, if this shirt cost from the beginning $75, would I get it or not, regardless of what it used to cost at one, in one time? Histor- historical prices don't, don't matter. They, they make us feel that the value is higher, but of course it's not. It makes total sense to me. I want to take a turn here, and I want to talk a little bit about saving, particularly saving for retirement. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for, and part of doing that is figuring out why we behave the way we behave with money. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Dan Ariely. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. I'm talking with my friend Dan Ariely, author of the new book, Dollars and Cents. Let's move on to retirement. I mean, you and I have talked many times about the fact that saving is hard, and the further 
in the future the goal happens to be, the harder it is. Why is it that retirement seems further away today than it did yesterday? Yeah. So retirement is very, very tricky for for two main reasons. One is it's just far away, and we're not good at anything that is far away, right? We we don't think about our health. We don't think about exercising, taking our medication. We don't do many things that are about the our long-term benefits. And then on top of that, saving is all about substituting something concrete with something abstract. So right now you see a new bicycle, and you want that new bicycle. What exactly are you getting in the future, right? Another $1,000, it's unclear what you're getting. Now, there's a bigger thought here. Think about a thousand years ago. Okay. A thousand years ago, people basically saved in livestock, right? So imagine it's goats, right? So, so you live in some, some small place and you save in goats and you come home from work and you see how many goats you have and you see how many goats your neighbor has. And at that time, we could actually compete. Right. And who has more goats? Right. We could compete on saving. Now, we don't know anything about what our neighbors are saving. But we know what they're spending. Well, exactly. What we know is just what they're spending. There was this really sad study last year that showed that when people win the lottery, their neighbors start spending more money. I saw that. We talked about that on the show. I mean, that was unbelievable to me. But it makes sense based on what you're saying right now. That's right. And so, so imagine that you have these two types of activities, spending and saving. And one of them, you make invisible, right? It used to be goat, and then we invent money, and then we invent digital money, and all of a sudden, we don't know anything about what people are, are saving. So how can we, how can we help? So um, I think in your opening, you, you talked about the fact that people need to start talking yes. about money, and that's, of course, one approach. But I'll tell you about another approach. There was a study that showed that if you take kids on the day that they are born, and you randomly divide them into two groups, and you open for half of them college savings accounts, and you put $500 into these college savings accounts, right? Not enough to pay for college, $500. And then you come and visit those kids when they're four years old. You find out that the kids with college savings accounts do better on cognitive and social skills. And you can say, how can it be that four-year-old kids uh, do better on these skills? And the answer is, it's not because the kids know that they have a college savings account. It's because the parents know, right? And what happens is that the parents get a statement once a month that say, this little kid, while still in diapers, has a college savings account. And what happens is that the parents read to them a bit more and buy them a few more books and so on. Now, now think about what it means. It means that what we can do is we can get the saliency of saving higher in the family, and here is a, a, another example for this. I was in Soweto. Soweto is a slum in Kenya. And I saw a father buying funeral insurance for a week. Uh, funerals in South Africa are very, very expensive. People can spend up to two years of income. Wow. This father was very poor. He bought funeral insurance for a week, which means it will cover him only if he dies in the next seven days. Right? These are very, very poor people. They buy small amounts of soap and small amounts of insurance. And he takes the certificate and in a very ceremonious way gives it to his son. And as he does this, I think, what is this father doing? And I said, you know, because they're so poor, if this father is diverting money into saving or insurance, what will the family see tonight? 
they will see less. Right? If you're very poor, every cent that you take away to put in insurance or savings, there'll be less food on the table. Something will be less tonight. If you're not so poor, it will also be less, but maybe not tonight. And what his father was doing is to say, it's not less, it's just different. You can see this certificate. And he basically took this invisible activity of insurance and made it slightly more visible. And I think that needs to be one of the directions we should take. So we make retirement savings, make the fact that we have 401ks and Roth IRAs, we make them more, more apparent, more visible? That's right. That's right. And, and so how would we do that? Say, how do you make it visible to ourselves, to a significant other in the family? Here's another version of this. We compared what happens when people sign, I mean, you go to a new job and you get the allocation of your 401k. What happens if your significant other has to sign that form as well? Turns out people save more. You know, most people make this decision when they go to their job without talking to the significant other. Right. They talk to the human resources people. They go in, they sign the form, they just do it. That's right. But of course, it's it's a joint decision. But you see, if I make an amount of money and I take more 401k deductions, I will bring less money home, right? If my pride is connected to what my salary is bringing home, hiding this idea that it's it's an amount of money that comes in and nobody knows about it, it's actually reducing my pride as contributing to the family's financial well-being. But if we get to talk about it, then all of a sudden, it's not hidden. It's a joint decision. And also, when couples talk, they, they are thinking more long-term than when they are by themselves. So there are all kinds of things like that. These are little tricks that make those financial decisions about savings, particularly for the long-term, less hidden and more apparent to the self and to the family unit. When you're offering solutions to people, and I know you work with a lot of companies and talk to benefits people, are you now suggesting that people be required to take the form home and talk about it with their spouse or at least get their spouse to sign off? Absolutely. So we have quite a few experiments on these things. By the way, another thing that happened is that we showed that if people get their appointment letter, right, your job offer letter, and it tells you your salary per hour, people save less than if it tells them their yearly salary. And it's not because people can't make the translation, what's the equivalent in a yearly. It's just that they think about their job in less long term. So there's lots of things that we could do at HR to get people to think more long term, more collaborative with a significant other. That's, that's a whole part of it. But I don't want to wait until HR departments uh, wake up. I think we could do equivalent things for ourselves. So if you think about um, the people listening to, to your show, um, ask them how many of them do they know what their significant other is putting in their 401k and how many are sharing the, the other way around. And just have a discussion. Here is what I'm putting. Here's what you put. Should we, should we uh, make uh, changes to that, to that amount? How do we make the, the saving part of the pride that people have about their contribution to the family unit? 
it's fascinating. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I just think this stuff is incredible, and you're making such a big difference for people. I want to say thank you for for being here. Thank you for being on the show. Um, Let me just ask one more quick question. I know you now have an app. You come in app form. It's called Pocket Ariely. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? What does your app do? Yeah. So, you know, over the years, we've created lots of educational material. I had a Coursera class, a blog post, uh, and so on. But I, we realized that recently people have lots of small moments in which they want just a little bit of extra knowledge, right? So you have three minutes, you're waiting for a bus, in the elevator, whatever it is. And people sometimes, of course, often open Facebook or something like that just to be entertained. Uh, but from time to time, people want small chunks of, of information just to learn something new. This app is designed for that. It's designed to basically give people small, uh, relatively quick pieces of insight about how we run our lives and what we could do differently about it. Well, I love it. I'll get it on my phone today. Dan, thank you so much. We will look forward to having you back. And again, the book is Dollars and Cents. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. And we'll be right back with Kelly and your questions. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. What did you think of Dan Ariely? I geeked out the entire time, just like I'm sure you were geeking out the entire time. Yeah. Since I started working for you, he's been someone who we've looked to, his research, and it's shaped a lot of the work I've done with yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we were definitely behavioral finance nerds totally. about this stuff. But he's brilliant, and he's got that accent. I mean, you just can't. He you just know. sounds really smart. He he's is really brilliant, smart. But he he's also really smart. sounds really smart. Well, you know, what's amazing to him, and my two favorite things to read in the papers on the weekends are his column in the Wall Street Journal, which is called Ask Ariely, where he just takes questions about life, but mm-hmm. he puts them through this filter. And Phil Galanis's social cues column in the New York Times uh, in the Saturday Style section, which is kind of the same. You know, they both have a little bit of a sense of humor. They both have just a nice... We should get Phil Galanis yeah, on the show, like by the way. Idea. I mean, he he does so many touchy-feely issues that have to do with money. We'll, we'll get that going. Mm-hmm. And I just... Before we move on to questions, I have one for you. Yeah. Did you get the bag? Oh, God. You're going to bust me right mm-hmm. here. Yes, I actually did get a bag. Um, I was only bidding on one at the end, and I I did get it. And I'm not going to give any more details because Hmm. I'm giving it as a gift this holiday season. Fair. Fair. I won't push for any more information, but I did want to know. Yes. Yes, I did. But, you know, it was for charity. Of course. It was for... (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I wonder what Dan would say for that. It was for charity. The way you just compartmentalized that. Yeah, Dan would say rationalization. (laughs) Exactly. All right. What do we have? Our first question is from Kat. As the holidays approach, I have a not-so-fun question about how we talk to parents about a tough topic, estate planning. My parents are divorced, and thankfully my mom has her will, estate, 
medical directives, etc., formalized and in a location where my sister and I can access in our email inbox and in a safety deposit box. My dad, on the other hand, has nothing. No will, no medical power of attorney, no nothing. He is healthy but will be 70 next year and had a major unexpected heart surgery a few years ago, so I know this is something we must address. He has investments, life insurance, a house worth about 600000 etc. I'm 27 and want to help him but don't know where or how to start. Okay, so this is a fabulous question. And actually, the holidays are exactly the right time to bring this up because you're with family in person, enjoying, hopefully, each other's company. I know the holidays for some families can get a little bit fraught. And I would just use some piece of the news, for example, as a way to get into this. You could, you know, the tax plan is making some changes in the estate plan ruling, for example. You could use that as your entree. You could use a friend as an entree. Oh, my friend told me she was sitting down with her parents to talk about what their wishes are and how they've set up their estate and where the important papers are kept. And it occurred to me that I've never done this with you. Your dad is also about the age where he is coming up on my 4070 rule. And this essentially says, if you hit 40 or your parents hit 70 and you have not had this conversation, it's time to have it. So you can invoke the 4070 rule from his perspective. If he resists you, and he may resist you, the way to get around it is to bring a third party into the picture and to recruit a compassionate financial advisor or accountant, sit down with them, and have the meeting. This one hits close to home for me because we're pretty much the same age. I'm about to be 27. And I've had some of these conversations with my parents. And I'm going to tear a page out of Celeste Headley's book of opening the conversation with stating the fact how uncomfortable it is. Because right now at 27, there still is this strong parent-child dynamic. And what you're doing defies the traditional dynamic that you, you have as the child here. So just addressing that at the top and pointing that out, I've found to be really useful in having this kind of conversation. I think that's really, really good advice. And I also think um, to just put their fears at ease. Often parents don't want to talk about this because they think that you're trying to take away their independence. Mm. You know, it's, it's a little similar to the conversation that you have to have with very, very old people when you start talking about not driving anymore. Not something that anybody necessarily wants to go to. On the flip side, you may find your parents totally willing to have this conversation and that they didn't know how to begin it themselves. So I would just say, Kat, good for you. Give it a shot. If you have trouble, write us back. Let us know what happened. And good luck. Good luck, Kat. Thank you for writing in. Next, one from Kira. She writes, Hi, Jean. I really love your show. Thank you. Recently, I've been thinking about what you've said about the investment gap, and I'm wondering if I could invest myself. I'm a college student and recently just got an apartment, and I have a summer internship, which is going to go to rent and living expenses next school year. Half of that money I have at the end of my internship won't be used until winter semester. My question is, would it make sense to try to do a short-term investment? I'm a little nervous if I keep all of my money in my checking account because I might overspend it. 
Am I a part of this gap? And lastly, how do you think I should go about this? So I love that you're asking this question. I love that you're asking it at such a young age because the years that you have now to invest are so much more powerful than the years you have when you're 30 or 40 or 50 because the money just has that much more time to grow. However, we're talking about a very short period of time. When you say that half the money that you've earned through your internship won't be used until winter semester, we're really talking about six months. And when you're investing, putting the money into stocks or bonds, we're really talking about needing a much longer time horizon than that. I would suggest some compartmentalization so that you don't spend the money. Look for a higher yielding savings account, maybe an internet savings account, and park the money there. It's not going to earn you more than a couple percentage points in interest, but it's also not going to be sitting in your checking account calling your name and saying, Kira, spend me. I'm <laughs> sitting right here. It's going to be somewhere where you are not seeing it and touching it on on a regular basis. So I would do that. And the other thing I would say is that if you can come up with any part of that money that you aren't going to need for the winter semester that you actually could sock away for the longer term future, open a Roth IRA and invest it there. And in that case, you can put the money into the markets. You could put it all in a low-cost index fund or exchange-traded fund that essentially buys the entire stock market. And because that money will have so much time to grow, it will be increasingly more valuable. I think it's so cool that you're thinking about this already. Yeah. I was using my extra money at H&M and Yogurtland. So Yogurtland. <laughs> I, it, I don't even want to think about how much money I spent on frozen yogurt in college. So I just, I think you're awesome. So one more from Gina this okay. week. I have life insurance policies on my grown children. I got them when they were small. Now that they have insurance through their jobs, should I cancel the policies I have on them? They are whole life, I think, 25000 each. Well, Gina, if you had asked me when your kids were little if you should buy these policies on them, I would have told you no. I mean, my rule is that you don't need life insurance unless you have dependents. And your children at that point, and maybe not even at this point, didn't have people depending on their income. So they didn't need to have their lives insured. Your life at that point was a different question. And I hope that you had life insurance on you to protect them. Now that they're grown, I would look at the cash value of those policies and what the alternative investments would get you for that same money. Essentially, you're looking at the value that you've got in this investment, what that investment is earning as an annual return, and whether or not you could do better by putting the money into some other form of investment. It's your money. It's not your child's money. So you can make the decision based on your needs for your future. But for anybody else out there who's thinking of buying life insurance on kids, the answer is no. 
Great. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, everybody, for those terrific questions. We do love your questions. We want to answer whatever is on your mind. So you can send us your questions at jeanchatsky.com. And now it is time for our weekly Thrive segment. If you are feeling stressed or anxious about money right now, well, I hope that today's conversation and this show in general helped calm your nerves. I say this because new research from Northwestern Mutual shows us that 8 in 10 Americans are financially anxious. The research found that financial stress can actually impact brain function, which can then lead to poor decision-making. And if this seems like a negative and vicious cycle, it can be. But there's good news, too. The study also suggests that getting advice from a peer or an advisor or a legend like Dan Ariely could help lower financial stress levels significantly. Neuroscientists found that subjects who had assistance in financial decision-making had marked increases in the neural signals associated with both relaxation and recognition. But when those same subjects didn't have assistance in making financial decisions, it found that their neural signals associated with more stressful information processing spiked 20% higher. What does this tell us? That talking about money with pros or peers or me can be helpful for both your wallet and your peace of mind. And I hope that listening to this show has the very same effect. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dan Ariely for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please take a moment, give us a holiday gift, subscribe to our show at iTunes, and leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we'll continue on this track by talking with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. She is an expert in talking about money. We'll talk soon.